like. And if you're sitting next to somebody, tell the person next to you what annoys me most is. Maybe a sermon that starts with an annoying question. I don't know. But what annoys me most is what? Few experiences rise to the surface in my mind more than when I was growing up in school. Every year, some teacher or some kid would bring an optical illusion picture. They're actually called auto stereograms. They look something like this. Do you remember these? They just look like a whole bunch of squiggly lines. They don't look like anything. But whenever they told you, if you look close enough, there's a beautiful picture deep within it. Have you ever seen these? I never saw the picture. I never saw it. Other kids would make fun of me. I mean, we'd be sitting there. Okay, the teacher would say, look a little closer, look a little closer. And other kids, I, I see it. I see it. And I'd just be sitting there. I don't see it. I don't see that. And by the way, there's a shark. If you were able to do this on this, there's a, there's a polka-dotted shark if you focus a certain way with your eyes. You don't see it either. You make me feel good. Thank you. Thank you. But other kids would, they try to help. They say, look harder. Some of them would say, don't look as hard. It's the fact that you're focusing so hard. Others would say, start with your eyes crossed and then slowly uncross them. And I try it and I feel like a fool. I never saw the picture deep within the surface. Today's text felt like one of those to me early on in the week. I even called some other preachers. I, I asked them, what do you see in this text? One preacher told me, just skip the text. <laughs> move, move on to the next story of Jesus. Well, we're not going to skip it. We're not going to move on because later in the week, uh, I'm glad that we're not skipping it because some deep spiritual truths started to rise to the surface. So what we're going to do, if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 1. We're going to go verse by verse from verses 21 through 31. And the message is entitled, When a Demon Comes to Church. When a Demon Comes to Church. It may not be a good sermon, but it is a good sermon title. We can at least say that. When a demon comes to church. Let's begin with verse 21. They went to Capernaum. And when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. Now I want to point out just something very obvious here. But it apparently is not that obvious. Jesus went to church. Now I know it's Jewish and synagogue and Saturday. It, but it's their version of church. Jesus made it his custom to be in church every week. He was a guest speaker. They wouldn't have asked him to be a guest speaker unless he was known to be in the synagogue every Saturday. In Luke chapter 4, verse 16, it actually tells us it was his custom. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue. Now, listen to these words. As was his custom. What's your custom? And somebody looked at your life and they look at Sunday morning where they say, typically, most likely, that person, that family is going to be in church. Barring an emergency, I know there's sicknesses, there's contagions, there's, uh, if, if you live behind railroad tracks, have you ever been stuck behind a train that's not moving? Th there's reasons, we're not being legalistic here, but Jesus was in church. It was his custom. Are you? Now, let's just take a moment. Uh, one of the things we don't want to be Adventure Christian Church is a rule-oriented church. We want to be a Jesus-oriented church. But this isn't rule-oriented. This is Jesus-oriented. Because he was in church. 
every week. And if we are followers of Christ, we will make the same commitment, the same surrender on our calendar as well. The average Christian in America today attends church 1.4 times a month. It was a Sunday morning. Heard about this story on a Sunday morning. A mother went in to wake her son and tell him it's time to get ready for church. And the son looked up at his mom and said, I'm not going today. And she said, why not? He said, two reasons. Nobody there likes me, and I don't like anybody there. And she looked at him and said, I'm going to give you two reasons why you are going to church. Number one, you're 54 years old. Number two, you're the preacher. <laughs> I tell you that story to tell you this. Sometimes even preachers wake up on Sunday morning and don't really want to go. It's rare. It's unusual. But there are Sunday mornings when the alarm clock goes off. It's been a long week, and I don't know if anybody there likes me. And I, I'm just kidding. But there's no, it's, it's, it's unusual. It hasn't happened at Venture yet, but it will. There will be a Sunday morning. I just don't feel good. A little, not 100%, a little bit tired. Don't want to go. I, I, I just want to tell you this. On those Sunday mornings, when I go, I never leave church regretting it. You know what I'm talking about? I never leave church saying, I'm so disappointed I went. I'm always so happy that I went ahead and gone. And then verse 22, it says, the people were amazed at his teaching. Hearing Jesus preach must have been a magnificent, breathtaking experience. It must have been. Can you imagine if Jesus was your preacher today? It would be amazing. It says they were amazed at his teaching. And there's other responses given throughout the Gospels about his preaching. Luke 4 says they were greatly impressed. Matthew 13, they were astonished. Mark 12, they dare not ask any more questions to Jesus. John 7, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. Why were the people so amazed? We'll look at the rest of verse 22. Because he taught them as one who had what? What did he have? Authority. You're going to see this word keep coming up. He taught them as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. Not as, uh, is there another verse, Harmony, right behind this one? There, okay, there's not. Okay, well, um, not as the scribes, not as the teachers of the law. Let me tell you how the teachers of the law taught in those days. They would stand up in front of the synagogue and they would take an Old Testament passage and all they would do would they would give the commentary of past rabbis. That's all they would do. And then they would add rules on top of rules on top of rules on top of rules. And you would leave church feeling more guilty, more burdensome, more burden on your shoulder, more weight on your shoulder. There's more rules that we got to follow. Jesus came in and what did he do? He preached grace, love mercy. He preached the heart of the passage. He preached that God loves you. God wants you. God's not mad at you. He's not looking for a reason to point his finger at you. He's looking for a reason to bring you to him. He's sending a redeemer. He's sending a savior. He's sending somebody to take away your sins. He's going to the cross. He's going to be alive forever. It's a totally different message. It's called the gospel. It's called the good news. And everybody said, who do you think you are not preaching rules? When you left a sermon from Jesus, your burdens were lifted. 
you didn't have added burdens. It wasn't a legalistic type of a message. There's an old song, an old Christian song. Maybe you've heard it, maybe you haven't, but great lyrics. Days are filled with sorrow and care. Hearts are lonely and drear. Burdens are lifted at Calvary. Jesus is very near. Cast your care on Jesus today. Leave your worry and fear. Burdens are lifted at Calvary. Jesus is very near. I keep seeing this. People say, you want me to be a follower of Jesus? Well, I don't want the added burden. You mean there's another day, another moment on the schedule, another event to attend? You, you tell me I have to read my Bible. I don't have time. It's like it's an extra burden. And I just want you to know, for those of you who's truly said yes to Jesus, you know that following Jesus is not a burden. Amen? He lifts the burdens. Burdens are lifted at Calvary. And then in verse 23, just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. What just happened? A demon was in church. Could demons come to church? What does Jesus do? Well, I, I want to take, I don't want to make this the message, but I, I do want to take about five minutes and teach you a little something about demons. We could go a long time about demons. Let's just take about five minutes. I want to give you five facts scripturally about demons. I hear a lot about it, the, 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 the spiritual world, Satan. Uh, there's a church in Houston called the Church of Lucifer. Did you know that? There's a Lucifer church in Houston, Texas. It's here. There's a demon world. There's a spirit world. So I, I just want to give you five insights biblically about demons. Number one, demons are real. They're not make-believe. They're the real deal. They are as real as the person sitting next to you. I'm not telling you they are the person sitting next to you. I'm just saying they're real. They're not make-believe. Number two, in your scriptures, whenever you come across a passage that says impure spirits, or unclean spirits, that's the same thing as demons. It's interchangeable. Demons, impure spirits, unclean spirits, and in this passage it, it says impure spirit, talking about a demon. Number three, demons are actually fallen angels. We don't know exactly when this all occurred, but about one third of all the angels decided to follow Lucifer rather than to follow God. They were part of their rebellion. By the way, their future is destruction. They are going to lose. That's actually why in the passage, the demon cried out, uh, have you come to destroy us? They don't know when they're going to be destroyed, apparently. They, there's Jesus. Has, is today the day? The demon thought today must be the day. They know they're going to be destroyed. They don't know when. So he thought that day might be the day. So they're fallen angels who's chosen to rebel against God and follow Lucifer as their leader. Their future is destruction. It is a guarantee. Number four, the fourth fact, this is important if you're a Christian, demons cannot possess you if you're a Christian. But they can oppress you. They can't possess you. But they can oppress you. There are no demon-possessed Christians. You are shielded by the power of the Holy Spirit. 1 John 4, verse 4 says, Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. 
Galatians chapter 3 says you have been clothed, you have been shielded with Christ. Who, who's been clothed? All of you who have been baptized have been clothed with Christ. Galatians 3, 26, 27, and 28. If you are a Christian here today, demons cannot possess you. That's good news. But they can oppress you. Sometimes through people who won't turn right on red. They have ways to get you, don't they? They have ways to influence you. They have ways to make your day a little bit discouraging. But they cannot control you. They cannot guide you. They cannot lead you. They cannot make the decisions for you. You are not demon-possessed. They have no power over you because you have the power of Jesus Christ in you. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. You cannot be possessed, but you can be oppressed. Now, there's two extremes. Number five. This is just how it goes. There's two extremes on how people are looking at demons today. There is one camp over here that never gives any credence to, to the spirit world, to the demon, uh, demonic world. They live their life unaware that there are demons. They're over there in that camp. There's another extreme over here that every time they leave their house, they think there's a demon hiding under every bush. And everything they talk about, everything they think, they're living in fear. They're living as if every day they're thinking about demons. When they watch ministers on TV, it's about demons. There are preachers. who It's their entire ministry. It's about demons. There's two extremes. By the way, both extremes, demons win. They don't care which one you take. Just take one of those and they win. They either cause you with fear or they cause you with ignorance. But they're affecting you either way. C.S. Lewis in the... I can't give you a better book about the way Satan and demons work than the screw tape letters. Uh, but this is what he says. We have two great benefits to achieving our goals. This is how Satan wants to work on you. Two, there's, there's two ways to do it. Either people will deny that we exist. That's that camp. Or people will become so focused on us that they forget about the power of God. Either way, we win. You want a verse on this? James chapter 4 verse 7. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. End of story. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So a demon goes to church. By the way, demons don't care if you do go to church, as long as you don't get anything out of it. They're fine that you're here, as long as you leave the same person that you came in. Don't let it touch your heart. You can even say amen. You can even sing the songs. You can even take notes. You can take it into your mind as long as you don't let it get from here to here. And then to here. At our hands. And the demon came to church that day. I find it interesting that no one knew that this man was demon possessed. There's no mention of him. He walked in like everybody else. He's not foaming at the mouth. He's not acting crazy. No one apparently knew until Jesus started to talk and preach the gospel. Another thing I find interesting about those three verses is, catch this, the demon knew who Jesus was. No one else did. Pharisees didn't know who he was. Sadducees didn't know who he was. Scribes didn't know who he was. His own disciples didn't really know who he was. But the demons knew who he was. The Holy One of God. And then Jesus says, be quiet. And you want to know that is a passive translation. You know what he really said? He told the demon to shut up. 
The Greek word there implies putting a muzzle over the dog's mouth. The word there, would have, he would have been calling him a dog and he would have been telling him to shut up. He was firm. He was direct. Now catch this. There was no magic formula. There was no pushing on the forehead. There was no holy water. There was no tricks in his bag. Jesus's word, end of story. Victory goes to Jesus. It's not even close. And in the end, when we talk about the great battle of Armageddon or the great battle that Satan's putting up against Jesus, it will not be a close battle. One word we're just saying. What a powerful name it is. And when Jesus said, get out of him, the demon had no choice but to obey. No contest. No holy water. No foaming at the mouth. No magic formula. No whatever. Just the word of Christ was enough. I just want to tell you, you don't have to be afraid of the spirit world if you're a Christian. He gave you not a spirit of fear, but a power and love and a sound mind. And then he left. Verse 26, you go on in your passage. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. Is the man okay? Doesn't tell us. Mark doesn't tell us because this isn't about the man. It's about Jesus. Mark's trying to keep pointing us to Jesus. Luke does. Luke shares the same story. And Dr. Luke, concerned about the man, says the man was fine. But I will tell you this. The way the demon left was even rebellious. Fine, I'll get out of there. But I'm going to shake this man up. And I just want to tell you this. See, the demon doesn't care about the man. The demon, demons don't care about you. They're going to oppress you. They're going to try to hurt you. They don't care about you. You're just a dirty rag. He threw that man down on the ground like a dirty rag because that's all that man was to him. What demons care about is getting to God. They care about hurting God. They don't care about the man. They don't care about you. They don't care about your life. They care about getting to God. And you know how they're going to try to get to God? By getting to his children. You want to hurt me? Here's some insight. You can do whatever you want to me. I'll be fine. But if you mess with my family, uh-oh. And if you mess with my kids, you just tapped into a different emotional trigger with me. And you know how he's trying to get to Jesus, how he's trying to get to the Father? By messing with his kids. Messing with his creation. He doesn't care about you. He shook you through. The demons threw the man down violently. Fortunately, he, he wasn't hurt. Verse 27, the people were also, and then there it is again, amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority, he even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the region of Galilee. And from the end of this, Jesus takes a, uh, takes a 60 second walk to Peter's house. Nathan, how do you know that? That's a strange, he takes a 60 second walk to Peter's house. Well, this is unusual. A lot of the areas in Israel today, people will tell you, well, this is where Joshua did this. This is where Moses did. They actually have a sign. This is where Jesus broke open the tomb. This was where he was buried. We don't really know. It's legend. We don't know. Here we do know. You can go to Capernaum today. It's there. You can stand in the synagogue where Jesus preached on this day. It's still there. And you can go to Peter's house. It's still there. We are, and it's, it, we're, it's, we are about 99% sure that is the synagogue in Peter's house 
it is still there. So people have walked it. They've taken the same walk that Jesus took in this passage. It takes about 60 seconds out of the front of the synagogue to get to Peter's house. And then it says in verse 29, as soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon Peter, that's Peter, and Andrew, Simon's mother-in-law, was in bed with a fever. Luke tells us it's, it's a mega fever. It was a bad fever. And they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. For the rest of the message this morning, I want to ask us three questions prompted by this passage. If you have your Bibles open, I want you to skim back up to verse 22 for a moment. I want you to notice this. The people were amazed at his teaching. Now skip down to verse 27. The people were all so amazed. I want you to catch this. In the first story, people were amazed at Jesus. You get to Peter's mother-in-law. Check your passage. Does it ever say that anybody was amazed? It does not. And isn't that how it goes? Over the course of time, we begin to lose our lose our amazement. Growing up, once a year, about an hour and a half east of St. Louis, Missouri, my parents would make sure that we'd get to go to a St. Louis Cardinal baseball game every year, one a year. It was about all they could afford, I think, <laughs> and that broke the bank. But we'd make our way west towards St. Louis, and out in the distance, there's a particular curve and a particular hill that all three of us kids were looking out the windshield to see who could see the arch the first? It's the largest man-made structure in America. And we'd all be looking out and somebody would say, I see it, I see it. And then we'd have an argument over who really saw it first, because I really saw it, I just didn't say anything. And you know how it goes. But we'd see the arch, we'd cross the Mississippi, the great big Mississippi. Our faces were implanted against the glass next to us, leaving our nose prints on it. And we'd be looking up at the arch and we'd be hearing whispers of, Amazing. We were just, as kids, amazed by the arch every time we drove into St. Louis. Do you want to know what started happening as we became teenagers? There were times in my older teenage years as we drove into St. Louis, I'm pretty sure I never even noticed the arch was there. I didn't even look. When I was young, it was amazing. It was wow, it was incredible. I had a wonder for the arch. And then as I grew older and cooler and neater and more adult-like, it wasn't amazing anymore. Now, I, I do want to tell you, I've gone back. Uh, my wife and I, whenever we drive through St. Louis to visit my family, now we both still have the contest of who sees the arch the first. And I'm not going to tell you who's winning that contest because it's not me. I'm still frustrated about that. But here's the first question. Will you keep your amazement? I, 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 never, I never hear this. I think that's one of the great spiritual secrets of the Christian life. Keeping your wonder, keeping your amazement for the things of God, the things of the cross, the empty tomb, salvation. My friends, do you remember when it, when it was new, when it was fresh, when you first became a Christian, how amazing it was? Wow, all the things that God is doing in my life. And then over the course of time, lose your amazement. It's not as neat. You lose your wonder. It becomes gung-ho. 
Will you make the commitment today? I'm going to keep my amazement for the wonderful work of God. Now, I just want to tell you, from here in this passage, they were amazed. Peter's mother-in-law story, they're not amazed. They kept going that direction where two years later, they lost the amazement so much that the crowds then were yelling, crucify him, crucify him. That's the end result of losing your amazement. They went the polar opposite within two years. That's why it's so important. That's the first question. You gonna make that commitment? I'm gonna keep that amazement for the things of God. I hope you do. The second question comes from the mother-in-law event. I'm gonna read it from a more, I'm not gonna say more accurate, a better translation, the ESV. Mark 131 says this, and he came to her by the hand and lifted her up and the fever left her. And what did she immediately do when she was healed? Got up and served. Serving out of gratitude, isn't it? That's what that is. He healed me, I'm going to serve. And we hear serve and we think, oh, work, negative connotation. I don't want to do this. I'll serve to get something from God. I'll serve so people can see me. I'll serve so I can look good. But that's not how she's serving. She's serving out of gratitude. By the way, I cannot think of a better definition of worship than serving out of gratitude. I'm not serving for, I'm not serving to, I'm serving because of what Jesus has done in my life. The first thing she does is serve. Second question, what is your response to him saving you? What's been your response? He's worthy of your worship. He's worthy of you serving out of gratitude. Carrie Shane in the, in the Huffington Post writes an article called, How Do You Thank the Stranger Who Saved Your Life? Good question. So I kept reading. She said it's completely and utterly obvious that thanking someone for saving one's life is impossible. It's because the magnitude of a thank you cannot and will never equal the magnitude of having one's life saved. Everything comes up short. The closest I can get is the Visa commercial priceless have you seen that commercial priceless a young couple goes up into a gas station bag of chips three dollars big cup of soda two dollars gas thirty one dollars a new life living together priceless here's the problem with that it's not visa it's mastercard <laughs> i hooked it up this week huffington post got it wrong i'm sure mastercard's thrilled about that it's not Visa, it's MasterCard. But I, I'd say they're onto something. What Jesus has done for us demands a response. Serving out of gratitude was Peter's mother-in-law's response. Last question. There was a word that kept, that kept coming up in today's passage. It was the word authority. Will you say it out loud with me? Authority. authority. Let's do it one more time. Authority. authority. It's mentioned throughout the passage. They kept being amazed at his Authority. He cast out demons. They couldn't believe the authority. Where'd the authority come from? You remember in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus declares, All authority has been given to me from, from heaven, for heaven, and on earth. Now, we use that as an evangelistic passage, 19 and 20. But all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Later on. Jesus is about to go to the cross. He's arrested. Pilate is asking him questions. Jesus wouldn't answer the questions. And Pilate threatened Jesus. 
And Pilate says this, don't you realize I have the power to either free you or crucify you? You're going to play the power card on Jesus? Remember Jesus' response? You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. You have no authority, buddy. I have all authority. Final question. Who has the authority in your life? Another way to ask it is who is your king? Who is sitting on your throne? Let me give you some options that I've seen, some of these I've experienced. For most people, who has authority? Well, you do. You rule your life. You're the king of your life. You do what you want. You don't want to, you don't want to come to church? I ain't come to church. You can't make me come to church. I'm my own person. That's, by the way, that's the American way. I'm independent. No one's going to tell me what to do. You, we don't have a king. We have a pre that's why we have a president. So we have nobody over authority on us. You can say whatever you want about the president. Have you noticed that? And you'll never be in trouble. So you, you are your own authority. That could be one option. Maybe, maybe your spouse is your authority. Or your marriage is... <laughs> guys are smiling. <laughs> maybe it's your spouse or your marriage. It's all about the marriage. And, and actually... Christianity is in this. We are writing thousands of, book, of books about marriage right now. There are hundreds of conferences about marriage. How do we save the marriages? How do we help the marriage? It's all about the marriage. Have you ever read through the Bible and seen how many passages there are about marriage? There's not that many. There's not that many. And the few that there are is not really about marriage. It's about Christ. I would tell anybody who's struggling in their marriage, run to Christ. That's what will save you. It's not about the marriage. That's not the authority. Your spouse should not be your savior. It's way too much on your spouse. They weren't created to be your savior. It's Christ. He's your savior. So it could be yourself, could be your spouse or your marriage, could be your family is your authority. We had a lady, uh, just a little sneak peek behind the scenes here. Our, in our first month, we brought a lady into this church. You, you've never met her, she's moved away. I'm not going to use her name, but she was that close to giving her life to Christ. I mean, that close. But she couldn't do it. Do you know why she couldn't do it? Because of her mother. She would not say yes to Jesus because she was scared to death what her mother would do to her. Her mother had passed away 10 years ago, by the way. But she couldn't get over the thought of what her mother was thinking in the grave. If she ever found out that I was hanging out with you guys at Venture Christian Church, that's what she said. If you knew what my mom would do if she knew I was sitting in your living room opening up the Bible. Man, who's your authority? Your mother or Christ? And that's the question. That's what he puts on us. Could be your job. Could be a friendship. If the friendship is gone, I'm, I'm out of whack. I don't know. I'm going to follow my friends. I'll do whatever it takes to keep the friendship. By the way, that's not a friend. Whoever makes you do that is not a friend. But it's whatever the friendship group is dictating. That's where I go. At some point in your life, Christ is going to challenge that. Will you put me above your friends? Will you stay true to me above your friends? Your checkbook, your kids. I have a whole list of them here that we could go through. But I need to tell you this. In order for authority to work, there must be Submission. Everybody say the word submission. submission. Now, 
that verse we read earlier, resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's how I memorized it. Maybe you've, mem maybe you've heard that verse or you memorized that verse. I was looking at the verse this week. That's not the whole verse. There's more to it than that. Here's the whole verse. James 4 verse 7. Submit yourselves then to God. Then you can resist the devil. Maybe what that's saying is you can't resist the devil. And tell you what? Submit yourselves first to God. Is he all you need? Let me close with this. May 20th, 2013, five years ago, maybe you remember, an F5 tornado hit Moore, Oklahoma. Moore is a southern suburb of Oklahoma City. 210 mile per hour winds injured 212 people, killing 26. The worst part about this tornado was that the tornado went through the middle of an elementary school. Maybe you remember that. Uh, Moore's a special place for my wife and I because we did some of our dating in Moore, Oklahoma. She was in college, it was a good place. There, there was a movie theater that got knocked down by the tornado. There were nice restaurants in that area, good, good place. So it was a special place to my wife and I. Several days after the tornado, I grabbed a few young men and we went down to Moore to help with the cleanup and the rescue. And in the middle of the day, it was about lunchtime, and there was a big tent set up for rescuers, and, and there was no rescuing on our part. Just, we, we were just cleaning up. But we went into the tent to take a break and to do lunch, and they had a TV up, and they were, they were showing the news. If there was any rescues, they would show it on the TV. And I remember sitting there eating a hot dog. I don't know why I remember what I was eating, but I was eating a hot dog. And on the screen, there was a reporter with a lady her leveled house was behind her. She had her little girl in her right hand. She had a baby doll in her left hand. And the reporter asked the lady, how is it losing everything you have? How is it? And um, the lady responded, I have my family. I have Jesus. I have everything I need. She passed the test. She has everything she needs. What's Mark telling us? In verse 1, you need Jesus. What was John the Baptist telling us in verses 2 through 8? You need Jesus. What was the Heavenly Father showing us in verses 9 through 11? Follow the example of Jesus. What did the testing in the wilderness show us in verses 12 and 13? In order to pass the temptation, you need the power of Jesus. What does the preaching of Christ in verses 14 and 15 teach us? Listen to Jesus. What does Simon, Andrew, James, and John need in verses 16 through 20? They need Jesus. What did the man who was possessed by a demon in this story need? He needed Jesus. Nothing was going to change in that man's life until Jesus showed up in the synagogue that day. What do you need? What do I need? We need Jesus. What did Peter's mother-in-law need? She needed Jesus. You want to live a victorious life? You need Jesus. You want to get over that addiction? You need Jesus. You want to throw away that stronghold? You need Jesus. You want that relationship to be reconciled? You both need Jesus. You want to 
break through that wall that demons are putting up in front of you, you need Jesus. You want to become more filled with the Holy Spirit, living in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You'll never get it without Jesus. You want a better marriage? You need Jesus. You want a better friendship circle? You need Jesus. You want to live a life of victory and a resurrection type of life? You and I need Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you give us significance today. Because of your son, Jesus Christ, what Mark is teaching us is we need him. And you are drawing people to him even today. The Holy Spirit, in the hearts that are here this morning, you are wooing us, you are moving within us, you're nudging us, you're tapping us on the shoulder, and you're teaching us that the authority in our life needs to be Jesus Christ, above and beyond anything else. I pray that you continue to sanctify us and lead us in that direction. It is in Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.